Today's program is brought to you by Happy Chef Uniforms, the perfect style, whatever your recipe. Visit happychef.com to order your free 2018 catalog. Food and travel, they go hand in hand. And chances are, if you're a fan of Heritage Radio Network, you love them both. Between April 10th and 24th, we have six incredible food and travel experiences up for auction at charitybuzz.com. Go on an underground food tour of New Orleans with a rocket scientist. Get your hands on VIP passes to Feast Portland or enjoy a ranch to table experience in wine country. Four of the experiences include hotel stays at some of the most iconic properties across the country, including the newly reopened Hotel Claremont in Atlanta. Now's your chance to win the ultimate bourbon and beyond weekend in Lexington or take in a Latin food tour of New York's outer boroughs. You'll eat, drink, explore, and relax, all while supporting Heritage Radio Network. Help us keep the lights on and the mics hot. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash auction and bid now. Hello, and welcome to A Hungry Society. I'm Korsha Wilson, and this is a show where we talk about food, food media, and so much more. Today's guest is Mayuk Sen, staff writer at Munchies, Vice's food culture website. He was previously a staff writer at Food 52, where he earned a James Beard Award nomination for his writing. Mayuk's writing has appeared in On Vice, Vulture, Elle, The Fader, Pitchfork, and a number of other publications. Mayuk... Welcome to Hungry Society. Thank you so much, Korsha. It's such an honor. (laughs) (laughs) This has been a long time coming. Absolutely. Lots of back and forth. Lots of, oh, sorry for the delayed response. (laughs) And now you're here for the season two closer, which is just the perfect, perfect closer. Let's hope so. (laughs) And you're here post-beard nomination, which congrats. Thank you so much. That's a huge, huge deal. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Applause. (laughs) That's um, really funny. So let's um, let's chat a little bit about your writing. Um, I feel like the stories that you write, the profiles, the topics, um, just have this like deeper kind of edge to them. Like, how do you go about like discovering the stories that you want to tell? Yeah. So um, I entered food media in September 2016. Sorry, I'm like starting way back. But um, I entered very much as an outsider. You said no previous experience food writing. And I think that I immediately my mind kind of gravitated towards subjects who were similarly kind of outsiders within this very white space that is, I think, food media and food writing historically. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that as a result, I'm really drawn to subjects, you know, from the past or present who have this kind of sense or convey within their writing or their cooking this sense of um, loss or kind of like a longing for home or whatever. Um, So like, for example, the piece that I was nominated for from Food to V2 was about Princess Pamela, who, you know, she came to New York from South Carolina and, you know, opened these two soul food restaurants that were wildly popular. And for a lot of people who made that similar um, kind of, trajectory or whatever from the south to new york it was kind of like you know a lifeline back home for them and that's how her cooking began as well 
And um, the same thing with, I don't know, women like Irene Kuo and Mother Jeffrey. You know, they had this kind of homesickness after they had come into America or the UK, for example. Um, and those are just, you know, older subjects. There's also Preeti Mystery, um, who I profiled in, I believe, October or November. I can't even remember. But, you know, she had the same kind of thing, this sense of, you know, she grew up with eating a certain kind of food and then she found herself away from it and trying to access it somehow. And that's why she began cooking a lot of Indian food in a very distinct and specific way. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about, I don't know, when food began meaning something for me at all, I think <laughs> of how, like, when I left New Jersey, which is where I grew up, for college in California, that's when I really started to miss a lot of my mother's Bengali cooking. And um, before that, I had not been conditioned to really see it as anything special or interesting or, you know, anything of value. It was just something that would sustain me. Um, And then when I was away from home, I was like, wow, I really, really miss this. And, you know, there's so much um, beauty in this kind of cooking. So that's a long-winded answer to how I uh, choose my profile subjects. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, your your profiles are really just amazing and exceptional and I'm sure you've heard all of this before <laughs> but <laughs> thank you um but speaking of New Jersey mm-hmm. where you grew up um eating Bengali food I heard uh, I listened to an interview that you did on another heritage radio show and you were talking about how um someone you were dating said you were Indian but not Right. <laughs> yes. My wonderful white college boyfriend. It was great. You know, um, I, I remember just um, talking to him and asking him for some reason. I don't even remember the context. I was like, so are you usually attracted to Indian guys? Because I, you know, um, I felt so uh, lucky to be desired at all, you know. And he said, oh, yeah, but I don't really think of you as Indian. I think you I think of you as basically white which really just, you know, completely screwed with my mind in so many ways, you know, because I think that um, I had faced that kind of accusation a lot in New Jersey, too, because New Jersey, like the parts of New Jersey where I grew up, both Edison and North Brunswick, is very heavily saturated with a lot of Indians and a lot of Indian immigrants and kids of those immigrants like me. And I remember... um, It was weird because I was one of the few Bengali people within both of those communities, you know, Um, and a lot of other families were from other parts of India and they kind of hewed certain cultural traditions that my family did not follow and I just did not know whatsoever. So I almost had that sense of like same kind of displacement, you know, um, within New Jersey. So then when my white boyfriend says this to me in a completely different cultural context, I'm just like, wow, thank you for getting at my, you know, worst insecurity that I thought was past me. (laughs) Yeah. I, um, I brought it up because you were talking about, and I've noticed kind of the thread through some of your profiles is people who feel like, um, an other Mm -hmm. as well, creating like these senses of like community, through their cooking and through their food. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you pick up on that really well. Thank you. That's what I aim to do, you know, <laughs> because I just feel like such an outsider within this space, you know, even after a year and a half. Yeah. That's the thing. You're, you're relatively new to, to food writing. And I think that outside perspective is really valuable and necessary. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I hope that I keep that, you know, because I think it's very easy to kind of get, uh, you know, really steeped in a certain vernacular because food media can often feel like a very insular world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've, I like to tell myself, this is really annoying, but um, I like to tell myself that I'd like to see myself as a writer before I am a food writer, if that makes sense, you know. 
And that's why I try to make a point of, you know, still writing about non-food topics. You know, I want to make sure that those parts of my brain are also working and I have a pulse on what the rest of the world beyond the food world cares about, you know? Right, right. I feel like sometimes I'm a little too entrenched in food media to, to see things from that perspective and subjects from like that outside perspective totally but it's so i respect it thank you i mean it's really easy to get lost in that you know especially when it's just your day-to-day life so um you also covered uh verdame smart grosvenor grosvenor yes grosvenor sorry (laughs) um who uh, well can you talk a little bit about um who she who she was sure so she was a um she was so many things. She called herself a culinary griot, but she was a cookbook writer, an actress, um, an organizer, an activist. Um, and she was, she grew up in a Gullah Geechee community um, in South Carolina's low country and then kind of went around the world. She um, went to Paris because she wanted to be the next Josephine Baker. And then she met a man there and then uh, moved to New York, which is where he was from, had children. And then in 1970, she wrote this landmark cookbook. I believe it's landmark. Um, and it was called um, Vibration, Vibration Cooking, Jesus, um, or The Travel Notes of a Geechee Girl. And when I first read it, um, I was just really struck by her prose because it was so unlike any other cookbook that I had ever read. Because I think that all the cookbooks I had kind of been weaned on and, you know, also been reading a lot of since I began my career as a food writer have been just very traditional, very, you know, like, here's how much you should measure of this, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And she completely rejected that, which I thought was so radical and yet her writing was so approachable and funny and she was writing about so many things before they you know kind of gained like weaseled their way into the mainstream like I remember Tejal Rao actually noted this in her piece on Verdame um, in the New York Times magazine uh, way back in 2016 when she died um, Tejal said you know she was writing about appropriation before there were conferences devoted to it and that's exactly what you see within Verdame's writing and I was like wow okay this is like my soulmate you know like <laughs> there's there's space for me here too and there's space for someone like her and yet it's really interesting because I think that I'm drawn to a lot of subjects who in one form or another have not really been given their due and usually I feel like that's by a lot of white gatekeepers who canonize certain women like all the Marcellas and Julia Childs, you know, who get, I don't know, become just like part of this like shared cultural vernacular in a way that, you know, obscures a lot of the work of a lot of women of color who've been speaking to, you know, certain communities and bring them a lot of joy through food and cooking. So, um, Absolutely. And I, yeah, I was going to say that there are so many of these women and, and men of color as well that are just kind of forgotten and, it's always, I mean, I understand why conceptually, <laughs> why people of color are forgotten because the gatekeepers are often white. But in a chef-obsessed culture, it is particularly infuriating that certain chefs aren't given the same amount of respect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's weird just to think of, you know, who kind of declares um, 
who can have power and influence within this uh, community, you know? I, I realize just, like, in the year and a half that I've been in food media, it's just so, it feels so small, even though there are so many people working within it, you know? Yeah. It feels small very quickly, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's a problem, and it needs to be expanded in some way. <laughs> so who are some other chefs that you think listeners should absolutely look up and research and know? Oh, my goodness. Food? Oh, man, from the past or the present? like Both. Man, oh, this is tough because I, I don't have a, I have a running list in a kind of my Google Docs, you know, like potential book subjects. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, let's see. Who are some really, really cool people from the past? Actually, you know, I did write a piece about her um, for Food 52 as my last feature, but Joyce Chen, who mm -hmm. um, died in the 90s, she was the first woman of color um, to host her own nationally syndicated cooking show. She, um, she was incredible. She, you know, in the late 60s, she was hosting her own show at the same time the Julia Child star was rising, and she was kind of being positioned within the same, you know, sphere as, like, this rising star, and yet... Obviously, everyone knows who Julia Child is. Um, if people know who Joyce Chen is, it's usually through her knives and, you know, her kitchen where basically and not actually the woman. But she has a fascinating story because she came from China and then, you know, began this restaurant empire within Boston and then hosted her own cooking show, wrote these cookbooks and everything. And she spoke to a lot of people. And yet her show only lasted one season. And yet for, you know, Boston, which is such a fascinating and odd city in so many ways, especially when it comes to race, you know, she really ushered in this understanding of Chinese food in her own kind of way, which I felt really just reveals a lot about that era. Like, for example, um, she called dumplings, uh, I think Chinese ravioli, something like that, you know, and I, and this is back in like 62 when her, before the great Twitter debate of, oh, oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. That, that endlessly fascinating debate, you know, yeah. I can't get enough of that stuff, but yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it's just fascinating to think that like, okay, 1962, like what were the, I guess, pressures and demands someone was working, um, under that made her label this by not its actual name or, you know, like use a signifier that is like, you know, recognizable, like ravioli to refer to this thing that is not really ravioli. Right. You know, it's really odd, especially now because like 2018, we're having endless debates about um, the language that we use to, you know, describe food. And some of them right. are really inane, like the one that you just mentioned and like, is a hot dog a sandwich? Like, who cares? You know, like I don't really find any interesting angles in that, you know, but like the Peking ravioli thing is really interesting. <laughs> That's so true. Um, I, there's so many of those debates and they're not really fruitful in my opinion. Totally. But, but then some are, you know, yeah. and, and I, well, I think, I don't know, like, um, one thing that was actually really interesting was um, I remember Nigel Lawson called something like carbonara, but it was missing or no, it included this one ingredient that is totally escaping my head right now um, that pissed off a lot of Italian people who were like, this isn't carbonara. Why would you call it that? And I think that's really actually pretty interesting. You know, it's mm -hmm. just like this means something within a certain cultural context. And yet when it's kind of, you know, someone parachutes in and just removes it from that context and tries to sell it to another audience. And I say this as someone who loves Nigella Lawson, you know, <laughs> like I, I just think that that kind of stuff is fascinating. But the is a hot dog a sandwich? Not into that. <laughs> so a question that I love to ask all the food writers that come on this show is um, what does the ideal food media landscape look like to you? Hmm, I think that 
I would really like to see more people of color, whether it's women of color or queer people of color or, you know, people who exist at the intersection of all those identities <laughs> um, be in managerial positions and really making editorial decisions. Because I think that lately, especially since uh, Trump's election, you've seen a lot of companies um, talk a lot about diversity and, you know, just like spew a bunch of lip service about how much they care because it is so important and food brings us together and blah, 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 which can seem really hollow and does not reflect really thoroughly within the editorial output that these sites put out. And um, oftentimes, if you just look at the mastheads of these places, it's a lot of well-meaning white liberals, you know, or, or worse, you know, um, because as you know, like a uh, food media attracts a lot of very conservative readers, you know, and I think that there's um, inevitably going to ble- be as a result of that kind of this impulse to kowtow to them and, you know, kind of placate them and not offend their sensibilities, you know, which I find a very dangerous thing, especially in 2018, you know? Yeah. I think you touched on, um, kind of a challenge as a food writer that I have and I know a lot of other food writers of color have is telling your story in a way that is genuine to you and not just because a publication is like, well, we need a black story. Um, Korsha, can you you write about being black? And it's like, what? Like, I I shouldn't have to do that on command. Um, And deciding when I want to share that part of me and when I when I don't because I don't owe it to anyone. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting how a lot of these gatekeepers and a lot of these editors who are in positions of power right now, they can very easily weaponize those positions and fetishize a lot of people of color and you know their voices, quote unquote, and say your voice is so important, but you know, ultimately what happens is you end up being pigeonholed into, you know, just writing about your blackness, for example. And I think that's so, that's so awful. And I think that I'm really lucky in that sense because I've had the privilege of having two staff writing jobs where I don't necessarily feel that way. You know, I do feel an obligation, especially at Food 52, I did to kind of write about things that I hadn't seen that site really touch with a 10 foot pole, you know, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I never felt as though um, my editors were calling upon me to write about my queer brown experience or anything <laughs> like that, you know? With a recipe, please. Oh, oh Jesus, <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> that would be terrible. Yeah, and yet, you know, it. <laughs> readers want that at, at Food 52 at least. <laughs> but it's great. Uh, I'm curious, what writers do you read? Um, well, in terms of food writers, there are three who I really look up to right now. Um, and they know that I like totally idolize them. Tejal Rao, who I just mentioned, um, I think that her writing is always really considered and thoughtful and totally beautiful. And I think that it's fascinating because Tejal is someone who can switch registers so easily. Like when you read her restaurant criticism, it's so funny and sharp and um, accessible. And then her reporting, you know, like the Kabir Ahmed piece that she was just nominated for a Beard Award for was just sensational and in a completely different way from a lot of her restaurant writing. Um, John Birdsall is another person who I really respect and, you know, I talk to him almost every day. I just annoy him via Twitter DM because I'm like, I need your advice, you know? Um, But I think that he's such a critical, sharp, funny, insightful person in a way that feels really uncommon within this space um, or can feel uncommon, you know? Um, And then Bill Addison is someone else who I always just, you know, his writing is sensationally like 
just beautiful, you know? And again, he's another person who really elevates uh, restaurant criticism into this kind of amazing art form that I feel like, I don't know, he's definitely the best restaurant critic I feel like working today right now, you know? So. Tejal has been on the show. Yes. Shout out to Tejal. She's great. Love her. <laughs> um, and shout out to John and Bill, too. Yeah. They're, um, They're fine, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> They're, they're so sweet. Love them. Um, just personally, I'd like to know if you would ever get into restaurant criticism. Yeah, I've thought a lot about this because um, the opportunity has come up before. And, you know, my immediate response is like, hey, well, I'm kind of an idiot. So I don't know how I'd like res- like take on this role. You know, I'd be like, uh, this food's delicious. Yeah. You're far from an idiot. <laughs> well, but it's, it's very easy to hide behind that, behind my words, you know. But... Um, at first, I was like, uh, I don't know if I could do this well, but, you know, initially, um, I entered journalism because I wanted to be a film critic, and film journalism and film writing has its own set of problems that are very similar to food medias, um, but anyway, I I kind of um, entered food writing very circuitously, but I think that still this critical impulse, like, exists within me, and I would like to, you know, kind of work that in some way, so I've really thought about restaurant criticism, you know, especially because, like, Right now, it seems like we're on the cusp of a really interesting moment where a lot of restaurant critics are so used to having done done their job in like very boring ways that are kind of apolitical and disengage with the fact that there are so many bad actors who have um, power within the restaurant industry and they need to confront that in some sort of way that is principled. Um, and I feel like, yeah, maybe restaurant criticism will have room for someone like me, you know, but I, I've toyed with it sometimes. Mm-hmm. But. Well, per, well, selfishly, I'd love to see you get into restaurant criticism, but also it, I totally agree that you know, restaurants have changed so much in the last, what, decade yeah. um, or even a couple of decades. Like, why hasn't restaurant criticism like, why can't we relook at the way that we critique restaurants? I don't know. I think that it's so... I think that food media is so wed to power in so many ways. And a lot of journalists, you know, um, they're operating within certain positions where they're doing chef PR, basically, you know, and they're kind of stenographers for them in a way that is really uh, screwed up and probably needs to change. And I don't know how things became that way, but that's just how it feels it is, you know. Um, I think, especially at certain food publications, there's just, you know, you read a lot of stuff there and not to like, you know, um, criticize uh, other publications basically, <laughs> but I think that a lot of sites are very, very um, discouraged from criticizing anyone who has any sort of influence or power, you know, like there's so many um, articles that slobber over, you know, people like Reed Drummond, who is in the restaurant industry, although she's more of a TV person, you know, but yeah. it's just kind of like, there's so much that we're ignoring here. And then that's how, that's how, um, things like the Batali stuff happen, or even the Paula Dean stuff happens, you know, like these people are treated so uncritically for so long. And then all of a sudden there are these revelations that come forth that for some reason did not surface years before. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it just, you know, is this a moment of reckoning for food media at large? And I think that we can avoid that by just not, I don't know, like by actually being critical. Right. Exactly. From the get go, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's very important. So mm-hmm. will you wear a disguise? 
Oh my goodness. Ugh, that's the thing. I, I would never want to be a restaurant critic because that would mean that there would be no photos of me that would exist online. And that's just a shame, you know, like <laughs> I wouldn't want that. No, but totally like I'm just joking, obviously. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's really, I actually have thought about this a lot within restaurant criticism. Like I wonder how critics of color kind of navigate these spaces, you know, because I think that it's really easy for, you know, some like white man who looks kind of anonymous basically to just like blend into a certain crowd. Yes. And yet, you know, if yeah. you see someone like my Yuxen, who's like this diminutive, you know, like <laughs> smurf of a brown man, you know, like, of course, I'm, they're going to know it's me, you know. <laughs> uh, Teja and I actually talked about that when she was here right. because she was saying like uh, her experience in restaurants, like people have like handed her uh, their coat and <laughs> just been like, here, take this. And she's staff writer a reporter for the New York Times and, and so her restaurant experience is different than uh, a white male who's going into the same restaurant in some ways like she's or people of color become invisible when they go into restaurant spaces totally or they're assumed it's mm-hmm. assumed that they're just part of the wait staff you know yeah. which is so I won't say it's insulting you know but it's just a really interesting dynamic mm-hmm. you know then how and I feel like people don't really talk about that because I I don't know how many other uh, restaurant critics of color are like currently working, but I'd love to know like mm-hmm. what their experiences are like, just like, you know, kind of entering these spaces as people who are operating under a pseudonym and everything like that and what, what that's like for them, you know? It's right. Weird. Do they even need to? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with my son. Maybe you're looking for a coat for yourself, or you want a bold look for your staff. You might even need a new style for your restaurant, whether it's modern, industrial, or farm-to-table. Whatever you're looking for, Happy Chef has got you covered. Their wide variety of chef apparel and products are perfect for teams of all sizes and styles. And with the industry's easiest custom embroidery, you can add your logo, name, or fun artwork to many of their other products in minutes. Here's what you do. Visit happychef.com and choose from their incredible selection. With only a couple clicks, you can customize many of their products to personalize your look. Right now, they're even offering free custom logo setup on all orders over $150, a $95 value totally free. Visit happychef.com now to order your free 2018 catalog featuring new styles and incredible comfort. Happy Chef, the perfect style, whatever your recipe. All right, so we are back with Mayuksen at Hello. Munchies. <laughs> so we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about dining and what it means to you. I'm so excited. And you growing up in the culinary wonderland that is northern New Jersey. It's such a, such a wonderland, <laughs> and it's slept on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you grew up in Edison. Correct. Which, if you had to... T- 
to describe the restaurant scene there, what would it be like? Just a lot of Indian restaurants, specifically South Indian restaurants, you know. Um, so I grew up very close to Oak Tree Road, which kind of spans both Edison and uh, the neighboring Islin. And it's like I mentioned earlier, just a lot of Indian immigrants are there and South Asian immigrants in general. So there's just like so many dosa restaurants, so many Bengali sweets places and everything, um, along with sari stores and stuff like that, you know? So I grew up eating a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and in terms of non-Indian cooking and like um i guess restaurants there wasn't that much that i I like really grew up eating or going to it's really weird like i was thinking of my formative dining experiences (laughs) in uh, edison and all i could think of was like rainforest cafe (laughs) it's such a great restaurant there's a rainforest cafe in edison there's one in menlo park mall which i guess is in edison i i don't remember what city or town it's in exactly wow I think one of my worst dining experiences ever, I was like maybe 13 and went to a rainforest cafe. And I remember even at 13, I was like, I, this is inedible. Like I cannot eat this. That's so great that you have that judgment because I of course did not ever, you know, even like the last time I ate there, which was probably when I was 14 or something, I was like, this is great. I love these chicken nuggets, you know, (laughs) but I, I, I entered it for the first time when I was like five or six and I was like, this is a wonderland, you know, I was going through my beanie baby phase. So of course I love just hanging out on the store before a table was ready being like what beanie babies are here and then i just walked in and was like wow this gorilla is you know about to chant at me and wow it's gonna <laughs> rain like it's how exciting i'm you know? just thinking about like a, a natural ecosystem as a concept for a restaurant it's how absurd that is it's totally absurd has this piece been written yet no i, wonder. I think yeah uh, one of us has to do yeah, yeah, Someone well, listening is like writing a pitch. Oh, right, speak. exactly. Yeah, they're going to beat us to it. Rainforest Cafe, TK. <laughs> yeah. More to come. A history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. God. Don't, don't, don't steal our story, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> Let's do a joint byline. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, do you have any favorite restaurants at the moment? Do you go out to eat a lot? You know, it's weird because I, I wish I did, but I am someone who is kind of hermetic by nature, which is a problem in a lot of ways, <laughs> just socially. Um, but as a result, it's weird. I I think that I like to kind of just um, prioritize, like, being alone and giving myself space after, you know, like, spending a day kind of interacting with a lot of people. So as a result, I tend not to eat out that much especially alone you know because I'm not really used to the idea of dining out alone it's still like is kind of this it gives me a lot of anxiety still (laughs) um which is weird but yeah I mean I've got a few favorite restaurants I usually don't leave my neighborhood which is Williamsburg (laughs) um so when people are like what are your favorite restaurants I'm like uh the one that's like down the block from me, you know? Um, but I really like Chinese club, which is this, um, Indo Chinese restaurant. So, um, my dad really loved Indian Chinese food, um, because he grew up in Calcutta and I was kind of raised on a lot of that food. And yet this is the only one within walking distance where I can get that kind of food. Um, and I really like just the, you know, ambiance and everything because they play a lot of Bollywood music you know it makes <laughs> me feel like I'm kind of close to Edison or North Brunswick which is the other town I grew up in um, for part of my childhood um, it makes me feel like I'm there again which is really nice mm-hmm. um, I've been liking Birds of a Feather a lot also the few times I've gone there um, 
Man, I don't know. I have some favorite bars, though. You know, that's kind of a less interesting... Uh, oh, no. That... Please, bars. Exley, um, which is near, like, the Metropolitan, like, GL stop, is wonderful. It's never crowded, because another big reason why I just don't dine out that much is because every place is so damn loud, and it is really hard. I am a soft-spoken person, you know, so it's really difficult for me. It's exhausting to just kind of, you know, <laughs> be opposite someone who I'd like to share. And like, what? Yeah. <laughs> And I'm what like, was that? excuse me, you know, and it's just like terrible. I feel like I'm going deaf in one ear right now. So it's just like, it's not fun for either party, you know, so, but Exley is great because there's usually like two or three people there, but the drinks are amazing. And, you know, it's, it's just a good experience almost always. Did your family have any like dining traditions? Like, was there a specific spot you went to or? I know. When you ate at home, what was it like? Uh, well, okay. Well, in terms of places that we went out, um, it was, you know, usually like Rainforest Cafe or, or the um, equally wonderful uh, Cheesecake Factory. Um, yep. That was kind of like our celebratory place. You know, mm-hmm. like if something really great happened, we went there. And then after we got back, we we're like, wow, that was a terrible decision. Right. You know, <laughs> but like... It was fine. There was this kind of sense of excitement around it. Um, but at home, it's interesting because I, um, my mom usually cooked and she usually cooks like just rice and then dal and some sort of vegetable dish along with a protein like meat usually. It's really weird because I am Bengali and Bengalis are known for eating fish mm-hmm. because we're so close to the Bay of Bengal, etc. Um and yet I'm allergic to all fish except shrimp, which is so odd. And I may have had like different parents or something like that. You know, who knows if I was just switched at birth with someone else. Um, and the real Mayuk son is somewhere else. Somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. But um, I can't eat fish. So um, a lot of times I just had to like lock myself in my room and uh, eat my dinner alone while the rest of my family was eating fish. But usually it was just like that kind of a four part meal um, at home. And it was great. You know, I, I didn't realize it was great, like I said, until I went to college and was like, wow, I really miss this, especially because dorm food kind of sucks traditionally, you know. Hmm. You've written about um, your being allergic to to fish and how that impacted. Yeah, yeah, briefly, you know, I think that there's a lot more to be written about that subject now. because (laughs) There's a book to be written about that. Totally, yeah, because there's so many, I mean, first of all, like, that was very early on in my quote-unquote food writing career, and now it's like... It's weird because I'm in positions where I'm invited to press trips and, you know, press events where there's going to be fish. And I'm like, I'm a food writer and yet I can't have this thing that, you know, so many menus are constructed around. Like, how do I function within this space as someone who has any authority whatsoever when I just need an EpiPen the minute this, like, you know, touches my plate? Um, So that's really, um, that's an interesting angle. But yeah, there's a lot there in terms of just, like, identity and the fact Mm -hmm. that I'm Bengali and can't eat fish. And it's something that it's just, like, is so um, intrinsic to Bengali people and Bengali eating and, yeah, identity, you know? Yeah. But Again, there is a whole book there. Maybe I'll maybe I'll start working on the proposal right now. Yeah, and then a rainforest cafe book. Oh yes, recipe. Man, I've got a lot of work to do after this. <laughs> if they haven't done that already, which I'm sure that they uh, they have, man. it's branded. That all would over suck. The place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you uh, make of today's like dining culture? Um, I know you said you live in Williamsburg, which is like. My goodness, there's like so many restaurants mm-hmm. opening in Williamsburg, around Williamsburg. 
uh, all of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what do you make of all of it? Oh, it's so interesting because, like I said, I'm such a hermit that I feel like it's really hard for me to have a pulse on dining culture, quote unquote, at large. But I will say, speaking in terms of my own experiences, going to some of these fancier restaurants and everything, um, it's just sometimes kind of alienating and odd to be like this small queer person of color entering these spaces, you know, because I feel like it's assumed that I've like walked into the wrong building or something like that, you know, or I I look around and I feel like I'm the only person who looks even remotely like I do within that space. Um, And it's weird. And I don't know what can really change about that. Maybe I need to just change my presentation somehow to kind of like, you know, um, assert that I belong in those spaces, but that's obviously not the solution. (laughs) Okay, I'm just kidding. Yeah. But, um, it's weird. I I don't know how, I I guess like these, um, more hoity toity, um, places can be more, um, accommodating to people who, aren't white and like obviously moneyed, you know, and maybe this is just like my own childhood insecurities kind of uh, playing out in some way, um, in some twisted odd way. That's one thing. And then, um, I don't know. I had off just like an awful experience last night, actually, um, eating at this Borum Hill restaurant where this is like completely different from what I was just talking about, but basically like I entered and it was just, you know, incredibly crowded, like sweaty, muggy, just like an unpleasant environment to begin with. Extremely loud. I felt like I needed a hearing aid just to, you know, (laughs) hear my companion, like trying to say a sentence to me. And then to get to my table, I had to, there's like this communal table in the middle and then like a bunch of tables kind of like uh, parallel to that. And I, there's like no space in between those two things. So I was just like, how the hell do I even get to my table and say hello to my friend? You know, it was awful. And I just had to, you know, like knock people over be like, sorry, excuse me. And then like do the same at the end of my meal. That's just such an exhausting and unpleasant dining experience. You know, I don't want that. I would not wish that on my worst enemy, you know, like potentially knocking someone over being like, sorry about your trout. It's on the floor now. (laughs) So sorry about that. Yeah. Oops. Looks good. Yeah. Can't so, eat it. <laughs> you, I, I always ask every guest like about their worst dining experience. Would you say that that's the worst one, or do you have another one? Um, no, that actually is not my worst dining experience. Um, oh, man, I'm trying to think. There are two that really come to mind. One was no one's fault but my own. But basically, I was in eighth grade, and um, for some reason, my um, <laughs> My family traveled a lot in those days. I haven't been out of the country since I was like 17, but um, we were in Paris on like vacation. It was really nice. And it was just my mom, my uh, dad and I, and I'm allergic to fish. And so on our first night there, we went to some Japanese restaurant and, you know, obviously there's a lot of fish on the menu and my dad got scallops and all these other things. And, um, Basically, like, I can eat shrimp, so I had some of his shrimp, but it was cross-contaminated with all this other fish, and I immediately had this, like, intense allergic reaction, and, like, my throat started closing up, and I, like, had a lot of trouble breathing and everything, and that was our first night there. We just kind of wandered to this restaurant without knowing, like, where it was in relation to our hotel or anything, and so, basically, I was like, Mom, I don't feel good, and so she just, like basically they took me out and then we just like wandered Paris as I was like about to, you know, like maybe have to 
gone to the ER. Oh my and God. then like finally we found our apartment, had some Benadryl and everything. And it was like, I was fine. just slept the rest of that night. Didn't eat anything. And it was like kind of terrible, but I was like, wow, okay, this is a really good lesson to just have Benadryl, Claritin, Zyrtec, or Something. an EpiPen on <laughs> yeah. my person at all times, you oh know? My God. Yeah, it's just horrifying, you know? And it's like weird, like how can, um, I guess, restaurants be more accommodating to people who have allergies like this, you know, and like have things on hand? I don't think it even occurred to us to ask, like, do you have any, like, anti-allergy medication that, right. you know, we can give my, like, potentially dying child right now? <laughs> But that was right. pretty bad. Right. Oh, my goodness. That's that's so scary because what if you couldn't find the apartment? What if you'd wandered around? Oh, my goodness. It's insane. Like, my mom is always like, you need to write about this. And maybe I'll take her up on that. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I wasn't going to say it, but I'm glad your mom said it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, my last question for you. If you could have your last meal in a restaurant, where would it be? And who is invited? Hmm. And it can be anyone in the world. Um, you don't have to have met them before. Like, it's mm-hmm. anyone. Oh, man. Okay. Let's think. I, at the risk of sounding corny, so I have not been back to Calcutta, which is where my dad grew up since I was four years old. I'm 26 now. Um, but he really loved this one bakery called Nahum's, which is um, this old Jewish bakery within Calcutta and it's particularly renowned for its fruitcake. I love fruitcake. I've written about this for Fruit 52 <laughs> yes. and my dad loved fruitcake and I feel like I inherited that somewhat from him. Um, and um, he passed away last year, but I think that I I know how much joy fruitcake brought him and everything like that. So at, at the risk of sounding super corny, I would just like to go to Nahum's with my mom and just have some fruitcake, you know, <laughs> like that. I think that would just be a fitting last meal. You know, I was thinking of like, you know, different celebrities who I might invite, like Jane Fonda and all these people <laughs> who I really <laughs> idolize. But I think just my mom is my best friend. You mm-hmm. know, I feel like that would just be like the perfect way to remember him and his memory and what he found joy and pleasure in. So. Mm-hmm. Would you would you just have the fruitcake or j- anything else? I mean, I guess for my, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't matter. I'm going to die anyway, right? right. You know? <laughs> yes. So it's like, I think I'll just stick to fruitcake. Okay. I don't know what else is on the menu also. So that's kind of an issue. Well, you can have anything in the world. Oh, man. Well, so it's not have? like, okay, so I can bring things from outside. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Oh. Jesus. And drinks. You can have whatever you want to drink. Oh, too. my goodness. Okay. Wow. I did not think this through whatsoever. <laughs> um... I think a glass of water would be essential. Yes. (laughs) But in addition to that, um, maybe some chai, honestly. Some, like, real chai, not some, you know, like, Starbucks, like, sludge or whatever. Um, And then, um, yeah, and I think some pakoras, like, some onion pakoras would Mm. really be perfect, you know? Like, my mom and I both love pakoras. They're They're our guilty pleasures. So I think just that, that's all the food groups, you know? So I think that'd be perfect. That is a good meal. Yes. I would, I'm not going to invite myself, but. You're, you're totally welcome, you know, to just like see me. <laughs> no, don't lie. It's, I'm not invited. You that's are. Fine. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I just want to eat the fruitcake and the pakoras. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you at least want to eat fruitcake because that's way more than anyone else wants. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Mayuk, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor. And where can uh, people follow you? Oh, man, what are all my handles? Let's see. My Twitter handle is Senator Mayuk. That's M-A-Y-U-K-H. My Instagram handle is 
M-A-Y-U-K-H dot S-E-N. Um, and then my website is myuk slash, slash dash send.com. So, Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming. It was a pleasure. And thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week on The Hungry Society. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.